make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. So welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Kaya Alexander. I am the host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast here today with our awesome special guest, David H. Steinberg. Who, who he has now changed his name to Dave, so we'll know him as Dave today. He's a writer, producer, and showrunner in film and television. He has 10 produced film credits, including several in the American Pie franchise, as well as Puss in Boots, which was nominated for an Academy Award. In TV, he works extensively in live action and animation, and he created and showran the hit comedy series No Good Nick for Netflix. He currently has another show in development at Netflix, as well as films at Disney and DreamWorks Animation. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to see you. Hey, you have a lot of experience, so I want to ask you what you're the most proud of. Oh, okay. That's a good question. You know, and and I think that um, I'll kind of answer that in the negative is that, is that a lot of times in the film business as a writer, you get rewritten almost all the time. And there's a lot of films that I've written that I'm not that proud of. <laughs> and they're not that they're bad, but you know, it's a very collaborative medium. And sometimes when you're doing like a directed video movie, um, you have a limited resources and get rewritten and actors and directors. And so I've got some credits that are not the best credits, but um, I'm really proud of my Simpsons episode. Um, but the, the thing I'm most proud of is, is definitely No Good Nick, which you know my wife and I, created and the show ran and um you know that is really the closest to like something being our actual vision like up there on the screen so no good nick well i love hearing that where can people watch it it's on netflix uh it's been streaming for a couple of years now we have 20 episodes um and it's the first serialized multicam so it, it's a, a multicam show so you're going to hear the audience laughing but it gets very dramatic and it becomes uh, a mystery and so as it unfolds, the, the tone of the show changes throughout and um, towards the last five episodes, it becomes very dramatic. And there's, like I said, a mystery element. That is cool. It sounds like a complex thing to shoot. Yeah, it was, it, you know, started off in the first couple episodes where we would shoot it sort of like a standard uh, sitcom where you had the audience laughing and, you're, and we're shooting the whole thing for camera. But there's a flashback episode in episode 15, which we originally designed to be done as a single camera to really stand out as looking different. We wound up right. actually shooting it with four cameras anyway, but it does have a different look um, because it's not shot in front of an audience. There are some actual outside locations that we shot four cameras. Uh, so it's just like a really kind of weird experimental back, uh, a flashback episode. Um, and then the last four episodes after 15, um, 
wait, is it wait, do I count it right? At the last five, um, there's no audience. So we we dismiss the audience. You don't hear um, them in the background or anything. So it becomes more like a single cam, but it's still shot with four cameras. Well, it's really visionary. Interesting. Tell me about how you got into writing. Where did you begin? Well, I didn't grow up knowing I wanted to be a writer. I grew up on the East Coast. I went to college and I went straight to law school as people do. No one at my high school said, oh, you know, move to Hollywood, be a writer. I didn't even know that that was really a thing. And I guess I never really thought about it. I, maybe I thought the actors made up their lines or something. But um, <laughs> when I uh, graduated from law school, I was practicing law and I was really unhappy doing it. And a friend of mine from college, I had started doing some entertainment law. And a friend of mine from college said, you know, you might... You, I know you're not happy. You might be interested in like looking into producing. And I said, that sounds great. I'd love to do producing. I don't know what that is, but, but let's sure, let's do it. So I, I um, secretly applied to the graduate producing program at USC without telling any of the partners at the law firm. I got in and kept working for six more months um, trying to raise enough money to pay for film school. And then I just quit cold turkey and moved cross country with my, my dad and I drove out and I went to film school. So that, and that summer was the first time I ever wrote a script. I was like, oh, maybe since I didn't know what producing was, I thought, well, I should probably write a script. So I'll have one when I get there. And then of course, when I showed up, I was the only one with a script because everyone else wanted to be a producer. Had you read any screenplays at that point? I don't think I ever read a screenplay before. No, I think that in that summer, part of the, the my um, wanting to start writing believe it or not, had to do with going to my first Star Trek convention. And a friend took me to a Star Trek, and I always loved Star Trek, but I'd never been to a convention. And at one of the booths, they were selling scripts, and I'd never seen a script before. So I bought a Star Trek Voyager script. And, like with the Brad's or? Oh, yeah, or, yeah, like a printed oh, yeah, out. Like yeah, like totally old, real. Right, and so I took that script home, and I was like, oh, this is so cool. I wonder if I could write a script like this. And so I like took out a ruler and like measured the margins and like tried to figure out what it's supposed to look like because, you know, there was no screenwriting software. So I just did it in Word. I got the margins basically close enough to what it was. And I wrote um, a Star Trek Voyager episode in Microsoft Word. And that was the first script I ever wrote. Then after doing that, I, um, I thought I could write a film. And so I wrote a film script. So that's the script that I wrote that when I came to USC, everyone wanted to read. No one wanted to read my, my Voyager script, but the Voyager one was the first one I ever wrote and uh, <laughs> did it in Word with a ruler. <laughs> did it in Word with a ruler. That's amazing. So at some point you must've fallen in love with writing. Was it immediate for you? Yeah, I think that when, you know, I came here with that script and people were passing it around and I actually got an agent. One of the, my classmates um, knew a lawyer and she got it to the lawyer and the lawyer knew an agent. And so I was only like in LA for like a few weeks and all of a sudden I was repped at Paradigm. And that, and that classmate of mine wound up being my wife. So we're still married, been married for 22 years. So um, oh, I love that. Yeah, so that experience of like getting an agent off of my one script um, they were like, okay, well, you need to write something else. And I was like, so then I was writing during the day and going to class at night. And I actually wound up not graduating. I quit after three semesters to focus full time on writing. And so it was the process of like getting that positive feedback that maybe, because I was actually in the producing program. So the weird thing is I was learning how to okay. produce, which actually came in handy once I became a showrunner. But 
the producing, I was making short films, learning to direct, learning marketing and the business side of things. And so all these skills that weren't directly related to writing, but um, became incredibly useful once I broke in as a writer. So, um, you know, once I sold my first script, then I was in the Writers Guild and became a professional writer. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. Well, that's fantastic. I, I love, I love that story. So it was, you just fell in love with all of it as it was, as it was transpiring for you on both sides, the creative side, and also as it was unfolding into your career. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I fell in love with the entertainment business. I mean, I'm not going to say I, I've been writing for whatever, 22 years, 25 years that I'm not primarily a writer because I am, and I love writing, but I also love producing and I love directing and I directed a couple short films. I directed a feature film. Um, that's not my current goal to like get back into directing, but um, you know, it's about making things. And part of the process is writing and that's, and that is a major part of it. And that's what I love. But I feel like for me at this point in my career to write something and not be able to make it is very unsatisfying. And I'm sure that's unsatisfying for everyone. And it's like kind of a, you know, uh, maybe a privileged thing to say, but I want to make, I want to get on set and like make more things and like get another show going and be in post-production and, and create the show. It's not just about writing it. It's about making it for me. Yeah. I love that. The, um, the world that you inhabit now, you've been in for a while. It sounds like a couple of decades. What have you seen change in the entertainment business since you got started as to where we are now? Oh, how long do you have? I mean, there's a lot of changes. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, when I started, there was no, you know, Netflix delivered a DVD in the mail. Um, I would say that the biggest headlines are that when I first started out, everyone wanted to be in the film business. That's like what the prestigious side of things were. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, when I was a development exec, same. The film business was like on the top. Yeah. And um, now everyone wants to do TV. And um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because the film business is sort of imploded. You know, when I first started out, I my I broke in with a script called Slackers, and that was a eleven million dollar budget um, was released in theaters. And then I got American Pie Two, which I think was like a fifteen million dollar budget, and released in theaters. So all these like mid price or low budget studio movies—they weren't like independent; they were studio movies that um, were mid price comedies were released in theaters and that just doesn't exist anymore so the film business because it's consolidated to such an extent and for whatever reason if you want to call it like shareholders multinational corporations whatever your theory is the fact is that they're mostly making franchise movies um big budget tentpole movies marvel movies um whatever big franchise you want to name those are the ones that are getting theatrical releases because the marketing um dollars are so expensive and then of course at christmas time come out all the prestige films that are like trying to get oscars this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in williamsburg virginia there's never too much of a good thing whether you're a foodie a golfer a history buff a shopaholic an outdoor enthusiast or a thrill seeker you'll find what you came for here and more so ask yourself what is it you want Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. But 
everything else doesn't exist anymore. No one's making, like if you made American Pie, that would not go into theater, that'd be on Netflix. That'd be a straight to Netflix movie. Um, so because all those movies are not being made and, and especially that affected the comedy business. I mean, if I were like a sci-fi writer or a big thriller writer or whatever franchise action movie, um, I could probably be still doing business, film business. But I, I wrote films for about 10 years and I still write them. I'm writing one right now. But I started segueing into TV, realizing that that was a better business and really was kind of um, something that happened when after I'd already gotten some film credits, my representatives were like, oh, do you want to do TV? And I was like, of course, I love TV. I always wanted to do TV. And so I was able to come in at a higher level because I'd already had produced credits. So I would go, my wife and I would go and sell a pilot. So we'd go pitch to Fox and they'd say, great, we want to buy it, go write the pilot. And then it came down to ordering the pilot and they would say, no, forget it. And maybe because the script wasn't good, maybe because they have to service all the writer producers who have overall deals at the networks. So the way it works is, is kind of, a, I told you it's going to be a long answer is that when you are a broadcast network, you have a ton of showrunners who are on overall deals and these overall deals are going to pay them a certain amount of money per year. And it usually starts at a million dollars per year for three years. That's kind of a standard beginning level overall deal for, for a showrunner at, a broadcast network. I'm not talking about Netflix. I'm talking about like you have an, your deals at 20th or your deals at ABC studio. And these are studio deals, not network deals. So that's kind of like your deal. So they're going to give you a million dollars, whether you do anything for them or not. So, okay. So now me and my wife who are like, don't have a deal, we go in and sell it and they we pitch a show and they're like, that sounds like it could be a great show. Go write it. Here's a little bit of money. And now it's time to order the pilot. Okay. So this one's pretty good. This one's pretty good. We've already given this person a million dollars. And if we order their pilot, that fee isn't new money. It comes out of the money we already gave them. So the million dollars is against all earnings. So if they sell a pilot for $200,000, then that's credited against the million. And if they sell five of them, that's the million. If they sell six, then they get 200 more, but they don't get any more money until they've recouped all that money. So if they're taking that roll over year after year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if they're working as a, you know, uh, consulting producer on a, on some other show, because I'm writing a pilot, but meanwhile, I'm going to help out on this other show as a consulting producer. And my imputed fee is $20,000 an episode. They don't get that money. They've already gotten the million, but the 20,000 is coming off that number. So long story short, when it comes time to order a pilot, there's a huge disadvantage being someone without a deal at the broadcast networks because they've already paid for the pilot at these other places. So typically year after year, we would sell something. I know boohoo, we sell something and it didn't get ordered. Um, so we continued into the, in the film business, you know, living our lives, making movies and getting stuff made, which is awesome. And no one ever ordered a pilot, but we kept selling them and writing them until 2012. We sold a pilot to ABC Family, now Freeform, and we got that same phone call and it probably was like our seventh pilot. And it's a phone call always. And, they're, and it's usually like, oh, bad news. And I'll tell you, one of our pilots that we thought was really, really great that was um, at uh, UPN back when they existed, we didn't get a pilot order because it was between us and the mullets and the mullets got the pilot order. So we lost that to the mullets just to give you an example of like what how the power of an overall deal. 
uh, okay, so 2012, we got the opposite phone call. They're like, okay, we're ordering your pilot. And we were like, what? For real? So that year, making the pilot, well, you're just doing the one episode, but it's about a three or four month process where you're getting some other writers in the room to do some comedy punch up. They brought a showrunner on to, to supervise everything. And you're meeting with the production designer, the costume, whatever, whatever, and you're building your sets and you're making your show. And then you cast the show and you go shoot it in front of an audience and you make your pilot. And so we made a TV show. Now we got the, the next phone call was not the good one where they said, okay, we're not ordering the series. That season, we got some bad luck. We had good luck. They ordered it. Bad luck. They said, we're not going to make any comedies that year. So they ordered a pilot, but ordered no comedies to series. So it became dead. But making that show, the two of us, we realized that that is a much better business. That's a fulfilling business. And that's when we left our agency and said, we, we left like APA and went to CAA from the film department at APA to the TV department at CAA said, we only want to do TV from now on. So we kept working in TV. Um, I staffed on a couple of shows and then No Good Nick was, you know, five years later, we got our, got the good phone call where they said, we're going to order it to series. And they got the series order of 20 episodes. And the reason why the TV business is a better business for writers, it's not just that you have more creative control, which is true. And that's, that's awesome. But it's that I'll put it this way. In 10 years of writing for film, primarily, I never learned anything because it's a solitary business. You, I sit in this chair by myself. There's no one else here. Well, my wife and I do it together, but there's no other writers. And if I'm rewriting another writer, I don't meet that person. I don't say, hey, what would happen? What, would, what worked for you? What didn't work? Give me, you know, help me out. You never meet that person. You do a good job, do a bad job, you get fired. I wrote Puss in Boots, got the movie greenlit, got fired. I got Murder Mood for a New Line, did a bad job, got fired. No matter what, they're bringing another writer on because if you did a great job, they're going to bring a better writer on. If you did a bad job, they're just putting it in turnaround. And that writer doesn't call you and say, hey, what, do you, what did you learn so far? So because you're not interacting with other writers, you're not developing a skill set. And because you're sort of a second-class citizen as a film writer, you're barely invited to the film set. Um, on some movies, I was allowed to go on set. Some movies, I was banned from set. Um, there's okay. just nothing. No one wants to teach you anything because it's sort of a game theory analysis. Once you've done your one script for your one movie, you're done. They don't need you anymore. So they don't. You're just an annoying person who's the only one on set who has nothing to do, who is a troublemaker. So a writer in the film business is an annoyance at best. But in the TV business, you're among all other writers and you're learning every day. You're, uh, you know, even if you're a writer's assistant, you get, get your first staff job. There's a whole bunch of people who've been doing this for a long time that are like, oh, well, you're doing that wrong. Let me tell you how to do it. Oh, you want to know how to do an outline? Well, that's not how you do it. I'll show you how to do it. Here's, here's mine. Here's what you did right. Here's what you did wrong. Oh, you want to learn how to do um, be on set, how to cover set, how to go do post-production, edit, sound mix, whatever. You might not get all that experience right in the beginning, but each year you're moving up. Hopefully, if you if you continue to do well and you're getting promoted, and I understand it's a lot harder these days, but you're moving up from staff writer, story editor, executive story, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're a co-producer and you have a producing title in your credit and you start producing and you start being responsible for the production of the show. You get um, 
a skill set and an experience level that is like a marketable skill of producing and your relationship with the network is that is, is a much more cordial one because they need you to keep doing it week after week. So they don't treat you like shit on a film, um, like as a film writer, because when you're the showrunner of the show, you know, they might disagree with you. You might get to a, a fight or there might be some yelling, but at the end of the day, you've got to make up because it's a marriage and you need to, I mean, yes, you can be fired as a showrunner and just bring in another showrunner, but more or less, it's like a marriage and you're in it for the long run to do all the episodes. So that's a better relationship to be in because you're learning and you've got good relationships with not just with executives, other writers, but like everyone. So like that, that, that long, I don't know. I feel like I went off on a tangent there because I think you originally asked me, like, how's the business different? Well, the business oh, is different. So great though, you know, because we did cover the differences a bit between television and film and your own process and evolution heading into television and the collaborative environment that is so beneficial to writers, to your process where you really got a chance to learn. That segues well into my next question, which is to talk about tips for writers or even mistakes to avoid. Well, I mean, there's a ton of mistakes. I mean, you'd have to be, <laughs> I can't go through all the mistakes you can make. Like, do you mean in terms of like the writing process of like things to, like I can give you, I can talk for an hour about like mistakes people make in their pilots that are bad writing. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, guess mistakes. I mean, if you're just going to say like a general question, I think that the number one thing that I try to drill into people's heads is to be collaborative and let down your ego which is easy to say and hard to do because even for me it's always like you get notes you disagree with and you're like why do they hate me you know do they are these these idiot executives don't understand and they do understand they just have a different vision than you and right. i think when you are starting out and you've got one or two or a couple scripts they're very precious to you because they're your babies and i'm not saying that you care about them less when you've got 50 of them but you kind of care about them less and when you know, you deliver that script and, um, you know, we did, a, we had this feature project with DreamWorks and you turn it in, you're like, oh my God, this is the best script I've ever written. They're just going to be like, no notes, let's green light it. And then they come back and they're like, we have a big idea. I don't, I don't know if you're going to like this, but like, could you like change this fundamental thing about it? And you just want to be like, okay, I'm out, you know, fuck you. You don't get it. I'm Can't done. Have. That's what your mind's telling you. But when you have experience and you can control your ego, you can say, let's give it a shot. Let's see. Who knows? Maybe you're right. I'll try it. And you do your best. And you're like, you maybe not think like the next draft is like, well, I feel like the first one was better, but the second one's pretty good. And you do your best and you make it work. And, and, you know, then they're like, yeah, you really you really tried hard. You really, really like took our note seriously and you did a good job um, trying to execute what we wanted you to do because they're your boss. They're paying the bills. And so it's always a fine line between being a hack or you're like, whatever you want is fine. I don't care. And like being precious, like I'm an auteur. My vision cannot be touched. You have to be obviously somewhere in the middle there. And towards hack is better than towards auteur. <laughs> Yeah, you're not a novelist. This is a very different industry. Can't be totally precious about every word and every yeah. idea on the page. Yeah, so that's my number one thing. I mean, if you want to talk about like what I read in pilots that 
bugs the shit out of me. Well, that, that, that is that's so endless. I have a long list as well of like mistakes that that you've seen that come through just on the craft side. But because it's a business podcast, you know, thinking about the business side of the tips of like where I have seen writers accidentally kill careers. It's one reason why I started the entertainment business school is like, whoa, if you don't know the business side, you might accidentally shoot yourself in the foot. Um, and I've seen that happen and, and stuff, especially with, you know, contracts or negotiations or decision-making around any of that. What uh, advice do you typically give to writers who are coming into the business who are just starting out? Yeah. I mean, it's like about keeping your eye on the ball. Um, you know, the average length of a career for a film writer is like three to five years. And like, you're like, oh, I want to break into this business. I want to make movies. And that's awesome. But like, then what? Once you break in, staying in is harder because now you're mm -hmm. like competing against all the other people who are in. And that's a much harder. Yeah, and celebrity. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the average length of a, of a TV writer's career is longer, but it's not 50 years. So if you're I mean, assume you're, say you're some young person and you're starting out in your, in your late twenties or early thirties or whatever, and you're like on the verge of breaking in, what's your plan for when you're 60? And cause you don't want to be someone who had a career for a couple of years and now you do something else. And it's like, you're just resentful your whole life. That would be almost more difficult in some ways than you're like, Oh, I always dreamed of being uh, a movie star and I never really got my big break that would be tough but what would be a lot tougher is getting a big break and having it last for two years and then that was it that's the worst so how do you get a career and how do you become someone that people want to work with forever until you retire and that's a really hard question to answer it has to do with again being uh obviously talented goes without saying but collaborative and a problem solver and like if someone who like can be relied upon to like deliver on time to to deliver good material and to be like a pleasant person to be with because at the end of the day people don't want to work with assholes and if you're in a writer's room and it's like well that guy's a jerk and you hear oh well there's all what about all these assholes are always getting ahead there's always these like you know it seems like hollywood's filled with all these successful assholes i'm like okay maybe that's true. Maybe that's changing. Maybe that's the way it used to be. But look, <laughs> I guess what I say to that is I'm not talented enough to be an asshole. <laughs> I am as talented as I am. I need to be nice. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not going to roll the dice on being a jerk. I mean, that's not my instinct anyway, but like why hurt your chances by 5% by being a jerk when you could increase them by 5%. Uh, and plus it's just, you know, of course the right thing to do, but like, how do you, track the project the trajectory of your entire career okay well i want to break in as a staff writer great and then you're going to work your way up and 10 years later be a showrunner is that the plan okay so then how do you get to that point how do you learn about those skills because it's not just writing showrunning is, is is producing it's not writing um i mean obviously you're rewriting people and you have to have you know amazing writing skills but it's mostly producing and so how are you going to learn about that? And like, I talked to like, when we were on staff, um, some of our staff writers, you know, I would, I would have little, like, we usually chit chat be before the room starts. And sometimes I'd say, Hey, you know, I got this like annoying thing from the writers guild um, dues department. Does anyone want to learn how the dues department stuff works? And then they would all say no. And I was like, really guys, no one wants to know. Okay. 
well, your funeral. It's like, okay, well, the, you know, how does the Writers Guild um, health and pension work? Like, what's the, what are the rules about your pension? And like, I was telling people, like, everyone's filling out their dues declaration wrong. Do you want me to show you how to do it right? And no one wanted to. And I was like, really? That like, I get that it's not writing, but it's your career. So that's crazy to me. Yeah. So I think it's about focusing on the big picture and keeping your eye on the ball for how to do this for the long haul and not to like, I'm going to write a script, going to break in and who knows what's going to happen next. Cause that kind of leads to a short career. Right. It's about being a student of the industry so that at each step you have the opportunity to learn more. You maybe you get the opportunity to learn budgets and learn more about how the guild works. I mean, that kind of information is really hard to come by. I right. think it's really cool that you're offering it. And uh, it's crazy to me that they weren't just jumping on that. <laughs> yeah. It's like when we were running our show, the, our um, producer, you know, who controls the budget with the network, um, you know, a lot of times would be like, just make a decision and would say, hey, you know, not trying to like step on your toes or anything, but can you include us in that? Because we want to learn. And like, there's always stuff that we, you know, you can learn at any level. And like, it's like, I certainly don't know everything. and I'm always like being a, a lifelong student and, and trying to learn every day. And when you make mistakes, admit the mistake, learn from the mistake. That process is what's going to give you skills that come in handy later on. But if you're just like, okay, well, I screwed up. I guess there's nothing I can do about that. That's not a good attitude. Absolutely. So you're in the Writers Guild. Do you also then through the course of your career end up becoming a member of the director's guild and learn how the other guilds work as well, PGA, et cetera? Um, I am not. I, I did direct an independent film, but it wasn't um, a DGA film. So I've never gotten to the director's guild and my kind of film directing aspirations kind of like faded away when I got more focused on television. And especially um, when you're running a show and you see the directors, I'm kind of like, okay, I don't need to do that. That like, I, I had like a director's bug for a little while. I was like, I want to, you know, be calling the shots on the set, but being the showrunner on a TV show and having someone else do the actual directing is actually more fun for me. So not having to deal with that level of detail, but just being like, Hey, well, we could probably get like a cool shot here. You, you can go figure it out. You'll be fine. That's kind of like my level of involvement to like, how I want to be a director. Um, so I never got into the DGA. Um, I guess we could join the producer's guild. We never did that either. So, um, you know, obviously as TV writer producers, you are a producer, but I think, I actually don't know the answer if it's more a function of being a film producer. Um, I don't know. So within the Writers Guild, there's been some changes. A couple of years ago, the writers all fired their agents. And now there's a lot of discussion about what's going to happen next year. Is there going to be a push um, toward to pressure streamers to be more inclusive about back-end deals and things like that? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, there's, you know, the, the irony of the streamers is that they're still called new media under the MBA, the Writers Guild um, deal with the with the networks and, and studios um, still treats them like new media, gives them breaks and discounts on residuals and whatever. And it largely has to do with um, the calculation of residuals and um, 
calculation of backend. The problem is not to get in the weeds here about how the finances of television work, but there's more transparency by its nature when you're dealing with a broadcast show. So if ABC Studios makes a sitcom and then sells it or licenses it, they don't sell it, they license it to ABC Network. So, but the studio pays for it and the studio owns it and they're deficit financing it and say they budget's $2 million an episode and they make a hundred of them. So that's $200 million they're in the hole and they're licensing licensing it to ABC, the network, and the network's not paying them 2 million, they're paying them 800,000. So there's a- You're talking about a show, maybe like The Office, wherein they're licensing, um, yeah, the BBC got it. Well, not not like the BBC, but like, say you're talking about like um, Friends. Warner Brothers Television makes Friends, right? But it was on NBC, right? I think- that was the network that it aired originally, right? Yes, thank so. you. Yeah, NBC. Okay, so Warner Brothers makes the show. They pay for the show. Then NBC gives a license fee to Warner Brothers. Um, but it's less than the amount of money it costs to make it. So how do they make their money? They make their money by having there be 100 of them and sell it in syndication. So then they yeah. sell it to, net, to local networks. So it's on at 7 o'clock or 11 p.m. And you can watch it whenever you want. Or nowadays, they'll sell it to... Netflix, or now it's on Peacock or whatever. But the point is that if you spend a certain certain amount of money and license it to someone else, that amount of money you get licensed is transparent. And then if you resell it in syndication to some other places, you know, like WTNH in Connecticut, then that amount of money is transparent. So the amount of money that's going back and forth between the entities to Warner Brothers is known. And it's freely negotiated in the free market. So if you're the creator of that show and you have back-end participation and you have 10% of the net proceeds, you know what the net proceeds are because there's a deal that was made. So that's why um, people who created hit shows in the 80s and 90s have hundreds of millions of dollars because those syndication sales were so big. And the had, of the world, know, yeah. Right. So that's why you know um, Dick Wolf is a billionaire. But okay, so then what happens now? Netflix makes a show, No Good Nick, and they air it on Netflix. It never goes anywhere else. It's always on Netflix forever. It's not going to get sold. It's not going to be on at 7 p.m. somewhere. It's not going to be on Amazon. It's only on Netflix. So how do they calculate the profits? How do they calculate the residuals? They make up a number. It's called the imputed license fee. There's no real license fee because they can't license it to themselves. So they impute a license fee. And again, if this is too much in the weeds for for the purpose of this conversation, we don't have to talk about imputed license fees. No, I'm like super fascinated. Keep going. Okay. So Netflix says that No Good Nick is being licensed to Netflix for some made up number. And Netflix can say like, well... You know, I'm going to give you made up numbers. So I'm not going to tell you the real budget, but say they say, okay, the budget's a million dollars and we're going to license it for 200,000 an episode. Well, who made up that number? Is it really 200? So then the writer's guild comes and says, well, you can't just make up a low number just because, because the residuals and the, and the profits are based on that number. And the writer's guild says, well, it should be like the budget. Say it's just the, the fee should be 100% of the budget. So if the show costs a million dollars, the license fee is a million dollars. And Netflix says, okay, fine. We'll make it be the budget. We'll say it's 50% of the budget. 
And the writers go, well, well, no, we think it's 100% of the budget. But they're just, <laughs> it's a negotiation because it's not like you can say, well, you know, WTNH gave you a million dollars. It's on the ledger because they didn't give any money to anyone. So the imputed license fee is a large function of what um, will be discussed in the next negotiation. There's obviously other problems, mini rooms, um, one-step deals, whatever. There's a long, whole laundry list of issues that are going to come up in the next negotiation in May. But it's always been, since the 80s, a function of new companies coming in saying, give us a better deal because we're new and we need to be competitive with the old companies like Fox. When Fox came into business in the 80s, they negotiated with the Writers Guild to have the episodic fees be less than ABC, CBS, and NBC because they're like, we're, we're competing with these big companies. And to this day, Fox's numbers are not exactly the same as, and you think, what's the difference between Fox and ABC? They're the same. They've been around for 40 years. But because Fox is like, we're the new guys. So the same thing happened in the streamers. Like, we're new media. So our rates are lower than these other, you know, established company rates. And the point is, it's time to like have those not be the new media rates. They should be the old media rates. And so we need <laughs> right, to have right. the, the new the new media of Netflix, which has been around for 20 years, be in line with everyone else like ABC, because it's not like they need a, a, an advantage because they're like just starting out. So those numbers are what the basis of the negotiations are about. That makes a lot of sense. You need to have a current conversation about, you know, where the industry stands, where, what the streamers are doing now, how much power they have now. I remember when I was a development exec and Netflix was just starting to say, okay, we're going to produce original content and start to go digital. And some of the EPs that I was working with was like, that's never going to go anywhere. They're like DVD by mail company from Silicon Valley. They're not us. They won't ever get in, you know, <laughs> and how fast that did turn, you know? Right. But they're still taking advantage of the deals that they made 10 years ago or 12 years right. ago. Well, and, and that, that benefits them, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and the irony is that Netflix has a favorable deal, but like Amazon has a more favorable deal. And like the smaller the subscriber base, the more oh favorable the deal is. Um, so obviously, and, and also when you look at like the over the top, over the top, um, it's called like OTT. Is, um, the OTT, like Acorn on Amazon and stuff. Yeah. So it's like when, like, typically, like Paramount Plus could technically be called that. Like, it's when a company has like their streaming service, et cetera. So, like, Paramount Plus and Peacock and HBO Max aren't Netflix. Netflix, at least, was its own company that had no other thing. But NBC Universal and Peacock are all the same company. So, like, to yes. have a favorable, um, residual model and profit base because you're a new media is silly because you're not a new media. You're the old media that has an, a streaming service. Um, anyway, so that's what they'll be fighting about. And because the last negotiation was in the middle of the pandemic, it was like, no one's going to like go have a strike in a pandemic. So it was like, okay, whatever, fine, moving on. But, you know, the writers, rightfully so, you know, feel like they've been taken advantage of and things come to a head every decade or so. And it didn't happen last time. Every time there's not a strike, 
there's more likely the next one there will be a strike because the same issues exist and they haven't been resolved. Has it been hard for you in uh, like your Netflix show, not having the transparency around the metrics of like how well your show is doing? I'm assuming they don't share that with you because they don't really yeah. tend to share that with anyone unless they have the bragging rights around it and they're willing to put it in press. I mean, yes and no. It's like, it'd be nice to know like what the numbers were. Um, we did our, our 20 episodes. The show was canceled. Um, they give you two pieces of information the seven day numbers and the 28 day numbers. And okay. it's basically after seven days, how many people watch your show? And watch your show means started watching your show. And then what percentage of those people finished watching the show? So it's completion rate. So you, it might be like, I don't know our numbers, but it was like 4 million people watched five minutes or more of episode one. And then 63% of them watched the all 10, if there's a drop of 10. So based on the number of people that watched it and the percentage of people that finished it, that's it. Those are the only numbers that you get as a creator. They have a ton of numbers. They, they'll be like, minute detail, be like, South Korea has watching this show more than Indonesia. And like, yeah. we have to figure out why. So but then you get the same numbers after 28 days and that's it. Then they make a decision. They say, okay, well, you didn't do well enough. So like on the one hand, would access to that data be nice to know? Maybe, maybe not. Would it be more helpful to know? Maybe, maybe not. It's not going to be like they say, oh, you had 20 million viewers and a 90% um, completion rate, but we're still canceling you. You could say, no, you can't because the numbers say blah, blah. They cancel you, they cancel you. There's nothing you can do about it. So knowing your numbers doesn't change what happens. You know, they're going to make a decision. They know the numbers. You knowing that information doesn't change their decision and possibly makes you matter if you know your numbers were good and you still got canceled. I mean, does it make you feel better if like they say, well, you canceled you and you go, well, I need to know the numbers. And they're like, okay, well, only 10% of the people finished the show. And you go, okay, well, now I understand why I feel terrible now. No one watched my show. So, you know, like that might make me feel worse. <laughs> so, but oh transparency is good, but I don't think from a shorter <laughs> standpoint, it like would make me feel better or worse to know the numbers. Right. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because you can hold the container of your create, creative process you know, intact without having it just be completely influenced by what you learn from who's viewing or the viewing habits to the people who are watching. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that like from the creator standpoint, what is more relevant to us is that when the show comes out, you know, you see, okay, some people didn't get the tone. They started watching it. They were confused. They stopped watching it. Okay. That's on me. That's intentional. Tonally, there's a tone shift. I already explained why we did that, but if you didn't get it, I'm sorry. You have to stick around for a while to like get what we're trying to do. But the people who got to the end in, you know, anecdotally seem to love it. You hear a lot of people who are like, oh my God, when I got to the end, I was crying. I, this was my favorite show. I love this. I love this. So I think we had a smaller but diehard fan base of the people who got to the end because it's a cool story that has a lot of twists that happen in the end. And if you quit after five episodes or two episodes or one episode, you're not going to get there. And I understand. But if you get to go the whole journey with us, 
I think you're going to like it. And creatively, that's very fulfilling to hear. And if someone says, I watched one episode and hated it and turned it off, that doesn't really hurt my feelings. That is like, okay, I understand that actually. I love a slow burn. A lot of a lot of my favorite shows are a slow burn where the payoff doesn't come until closer to the finale. Next, we're going to shift over to the uh, to the Q and A because I have some students uh, here from the Entertainment Business School who have questions. So let's go ahead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, this is Laura Britton. So as here's my question, as a future showrunner, is it more important to create something, i.e., you know, keep, you know, keep on the path to directing and writing my own material as in a couple of shorts in a feature, or would it be more important to concentrate on getting into a room and, um, no, i.e., so would that mean getting the transferable skills as producing something, directing something versus knowledge of working in a room? I think being in a room is like the most valuable experience you could possibly have. I mean, if you're, if you're telling me your career trajectory is you want to get to a point where you're creating your own show and running your own show, yep. then you got, you've got to start in the room and like producing something else is not that valuable and directing something is very tangential, but being a staff writer, even being a writer assistant, you're going to be like, Oh, just, it's like, you can imagine what the writer's room is like, but if you're sitting there and you see it, oh, now I get it. And then you see a showrunner who maybe he or she does a, a great job and you go in another room and they, he or she does a bad job. You go, okay, well, now I know what not to do. And like, what is a co-EP, a good co-EP like? What's a bad co-EP like? Being in the room is the best education you can get. And in the olden days, which I think were actually better in some ways, um, you really had to be in a writer's room for you know, six to eight years before they even let you pitch originals. In the olden days, the 90s, even up to the 2000s, um, people didn't write spec pilots. They wrote spec episodes because that's what staff writers do. You write an episode of Cheers to show you can work on Cheers or some other sitcom. Um, now, for some reason, the, the industry has changed where everyone is expected to write a pilot, but it's the hardest thing in the world to do and practically no one does it well and no one's going to buy a pilot from someone who doesn't really have the experience and you're not going to be the showrunner anyway because you don't know how to produce so being a staff writer learning how to write in someone else's voice learning how to be good and good contribution in the room work your way up get promoted that training system is invaluable and you're going to have the best showrunning experience if you like do it slowly. If you sell your a spec pilot and they bring a showrunner in to supervise you, and then your next show, you sell another one and now you're the showrunner, you may pull it off, but that is a much harder situation to be in, um, being given the reins of your own show without the experience of being in the room. Hi, yes. Um, I'm Rosalie Recorden. Everything you said was exactly so inspiring and what I'm really trying to get to as well. Like I want to run my own show and everything, but I'm also working production as a 
office PA right now because I want to learn about production, but actually I really want to be a writer assistant or a staff writer at one point. So I'm thinking like, I know I have to get there. How do I get there? The good news is that you're already on the lot, you know, maybe like the virtual lot, maybe the real lot, but like getting into the studio lot is the first step and then getting on the stage and then getting in the writer's room, you're getting into like more and more better places that you want to be in. But like, you're much more ahead of someone who's like not been on the lot and being um, your production assistant right now. Yeah. Office PA. Oh, you're an office PA. Okay. So an office PA. So you're like doing a great job. You're like a go-getter, you're a problem solver. Your boss is like the production coordinator uh, and then the production quarters reporting to the line producer and they're like, um, you got, you got to see this. We got to let her like handle this. Cause she always does it right. Whatever. And you're also like, you're making a good impression on the people that you're working with by being a nice person, problem solver, whatever. You're also letting people know that you want to be a writer. It's not like, it's not a surprise. Everyone wants to be a writer. And when you're even though you're an office PA, you're going to have access to the stage. You know, sometimes you're going to be, you know, in the room with the with the other writers or with uh, other people. And you're not going to be like going up to the show and be like, hey, I'm an office PA. Can you read my script? That's not the way to do it. But as when I was the showrunner, I knew the office PAs. It's not like there's a hundred of them and you know who they are. And depending on the showrunner, they might be open. I would always have conversations, you know, you'd be hanging out you're making a show like you're hanging out here in the office pas there like oh what are you working on oh i'm writing a pilot oh cool well if you know if you, let me read it one day if you're you know if you want someone to take a look make friends with the staff writers make friends with the writer's assistant make friends with the writers in the room you don't say like please read my script but you say like hey you know not to bother you but if you ever have just like five minutes could i ask you some questions about writing because you know if that's my dream is to be in the writer's room like could i ask you like some questions if you're a nice person and you seem cool, they'll say yes. If you seem like an annoying person, they'll say no. But, you know, then you're like, you're making a show. So you have the benefit of time and being there where you're going to make those relationships. And at some point, some people will view you as more than like just an office PA and like someone who's like part of the team. And they're not going to like go out of their way to help you, but they're maybe going to give you a little bit of help, maybe some advice. Maybe someone will read your script. Maybe someone will recommend you to a manager. Hey, I heard there's a, a job. And by the way, the writer assistant is, is getting staffed and we need a new writer assistant. Oh, you know who would be good? Um, she's like always really nice. And she seems really totally, what's the line, what's the production quarter thing? Oh, she's the best. You know, it's just like showing that you're good at your job and getting people to sing your praises so that when an opening comes up, you're the one they recommend and making relationships with people at lower levels with the other PAs, with the other, you know, the low level staff writers or whatever. And like, it's not like there's a, a science to it. It's just like, how do you become someone that people like, you know, and like, and value as a valuable member of the team. Thank you very much. Uh, John Inge here. I wrote down my question because I'm a writer. Um, of course it's, Oh, here we go. Since most staff writers don't write pilots well, what are you looking for from a new writer you're, when you're looking to staff? Well, it's not up to me. I don't, I'm not in charge of the business. And like, even though I think that new writers don't write pilots well, for some reason, the business decided 
that um, you have to write a pilot. So I'm going to have to read your pilot. Look, if you write a spec episode of something I've seen, I'll read that instead. I'm into it. I've read um, spec episodes that I thought were really good and, and given shout outs. And like, I would totally meet with someone who had written a, a spec episode, but I mean, so I think you should write a pilot and a spec episode. So you have at least one of each. Um, but just because I say like pilots are hard, doesn't mean you shouldn't write one because everyone else is going to ask for it. You know, it's just to establish the world and the characters and the conflict and make it a typical episode all in 30 pages is very, very hard. And no one does it well. The brain so, surgery of writing. Yeah. <laughs> so write a spec episode also, because like, you know, you can always get some heat off of that if you do a good job. So is that what you're looking for when you're like, because well, you're a showrunner, right? So yeah. you're, <laughs> you're reading people to staff. So like what? Uh... Well, only when I have a show, I'm not reading people to staff just like all day long. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But um, like, you know, like what am I looking for in the script? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm looking for like it to be engaging and not boring and surprise. It has to be surprising. I think that the biggest, most general note I can say is that I read stuff all the time where it's like, okay, well, that's what I thought was going to happen. Or it starts off with like someone waking up and turning off their alarm clock and you see them like having breakfast. I'm like, okay, I get it. They're a person that wakes up. I, I understand that world. But start with something interesting. I'm not saying it has to be like your, you know, explosion on page one, but like get to the premise faster because I might only read five pages. Don't save it. Don't, I read a lot of scripts where, on page 30, it's like, oh, that's what the show is going to be about. Too late. I'm not going to probably get to page 30 for staffing. I'm going to read five pages. So just pretend you're only writing five pages. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Uh, Ryan. Uh, thanks, Dave. Really appreciate it. Uh, I also learned how to write scripts reading Star Trek scripts, too. Uh -huh. So uh, I'm a huge Trekkie. Um, my dream would be to staff on Star Trek. Um, so I, my question really is, is if you're not on the lot, like uh, Rosalind, uh, Rosalind. Get on the lot. Uh, That's simple. Get on the lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was my question was, what is the best way if you're, if you're just, you know, a writer that's not anywhere near a lot? Look, I mean, there's a, the question everyone wants to know is, how do you break in? And I can't answer. It's like, I can tell you what I did. It's completely useless. Um, but the... There's a bunch of paths. I mean, do you have representation? No, not yet. No. Okay, so that's what you got to do. You got to get a manager. Great. How do I get a manager? I don't know. You got to like win some contests or get on the blacklist or something. I don't know what people do these days. I broke in 25 years ago. So like <laughs> you got to like get your community of people on whatever screenwriting, Twitter, you know, maybe you make cool some TikTok videos and like you get a million views on something that goes viral. I mean, look at Sarah Cooper. She like lip synced Trump and like she got 2 million followers now and got her own special. Just like do something that stands out. It's about branding and like write a great script, duh. And then like, how do you get that to someone who can help you? I don't know, but people do listen to this. There's a podcast, um, like basically, I don't know the exact title, but it's something like how do how people break in or like new writers breaking in. It's all about like young writers who've just gotten their first job and like how they got there. Listen to that podcast. I mean, I mean, but like I'm telling you, go listen to that podcast. Why don't you already know about it? Like, why haven't you figured out like, oh, well, you know, I should listen to that podcast about how people break in. That's the thing about this business is that 
No one tells you how to do it because there is no right answer. So that sucks. Like, it's not like being a dentist where you can just go to dental school. And no one says like, I really want to be a dentist, but I don't know how to break in. Can you give me some advice on them? Because everyone knows it's simple, but there's no answer in this business, which sucks, but it's a test. Can you figure it out? And if you can figure out how to like get something to a manager who's going to get you that job on the lot. And then like you figure out you're sitting in that office PA job and you go, Hmm, how can I get from here to there? And you figure it out. Guess what? You're developing the skills that make you become a great writer producer, because that's all we do. It's not like people are like, Oh, I need you to like create something from scratch all the time. More often than not, they're like, I've got an idea. I've got IP. I've got something I'm the network. I need someone to do my thing and can you figure it out? And so if you can figure things out and like problem solve and whether it's, you know, you've written your great script and I say, okay, well, you had it be a family of four. I need it to be a family of five. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Cause it's all about, you go, I need it to be this way. Can you do it or not? And you're like, yes, I can. I can figure it out. And when you're a problem solver on story and a problem solver on producing that's what's going to give you a career. So I don't know how to break in, but if you figure it out, then you deserve to break in. It's kind of, I don't know if that's, that's either really terrible advice or really great advice. I don't know which. <laughs> no, it, it makes sense. Thank you so much for being here with us, Dave. We're all so okay. grateful and appreciative. And I always get to learn from you, which I just love so much. Oh, you. uh, it, you've been so helpful on Twitter and now here on the show. Thank you so much. Where can people follow you on Twitter? What's your handle? Oh, I'm simple. I'm David H. Steinberg on Twitter, David H. Steinberg everywhere. I just across all everything. Not that like you want to follow my Instagram. It's not that interesting. But all my social media is just David H. Steinberg. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. And i uh, We'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training, as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.